Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. For 12 years, our nation was afflicted with hear nothing, see nothing, do nothing, government. The nation, the nation looked to that government, but that government looked away. Nine mocking years with the golden calf and three long years of the scourge. Nine crazy years at the ticker and three long years in the breadline. Nine mad years of mirage and three long years of despair. And my friends, powerful influences strive today to restore that kind of government with its doctrine that that government is best, which is most indifferent to mankind. For nearly four years now, you have had an administration which instead of twirling its thumbs, has rolled up its sleeves. And I can assure you that we will keep our sleeves rolled up. had to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. And we know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. Never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. Oh, what is going on? Happy Tuesday, Kansas City. My fellow KC morning hoes. Tuesdays, you know what we do on this show. We take back America. Myself, Professor Harvey J.K., the Professor Emeritus over at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. 
Professor K is in New York, right? Yes. Professor K and his wife, Lorna, they are seeing their daughter and son-in-law. So on the show today, we're going to take it back. We're going to kick it off first with Professor K's video that he did with the Gravel Institute for their video that is called The Most Radical Speech in Presidential History. The description reads, in 1944, an American president proposed a sweeping reorganization of American life, a second bill of rights that recognized not only political rights, but economic rights as well. Franklin Roosevelt's speech would today be regarded as far outside the political mainstream, but when it was proposed, it was overwhelmingly popular with ordinary Americans. After that, we head to 2014. This was Professor K's appearance with Bill Moyers of PBS, one of the most incredible authors and journalists and historians of all time, you know, next to Professor K. They are dear friends, you can tell in this interview. In fact, Professor K says that this is the best TV appearance that he has ever done. So... On the show today, FDR and Professor K, and I guess Bill Moyers, and you, Kansas City, most importantly, you. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do, Kansas City. Back in your feeds tomorrow, it is a good day, damn good day, to be a Kansas Cityan. We will see you in the morning bye Do you believe in the promise proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence? Do you believe that all of us are created equal and that we have a natural right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? And do you also believe that we should guarantee those rights to all Americans? Of course you do. So let's think about what that means. On January 11, 1944, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, FDR, delivered his 11th State of the Union message to Congress. The United States was in the middle of its biggest and most consequential war, pitted against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. But Roosevelt didn't just talk about winning the war, he also spoke of what Americans needed to do to win the peace to come. In a speech to Congress that day, he called for a new Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights. In the 1930s, Roosevelt and the American people had fought the Great Depression, the worst economic and social catastrophe in US history. Rallying to the President's New Deal, they not only had revived the economy, they had also subjected business and finance to public supervision and regulation, empowered the federal government to address the needs of working people, mobilized and organized labor unions and civil rights groups, established a social security system, expanded and upgraded the nation's public infrastructure, improved the environment, and cultivated and promoted the arts. In 1941, however, Americans confronted a new crisis, the Second World War. But here too, they went all out. In fact, they not only did all they could to fight fascism overseas, but also fought for democracy at home by dramatically expanding the labor and civil rights movements. And by early 1944, there was good cause to believe both that victory might soon be at hand and that further progressive action was possible. 
At the outset of the State of the Union speech, Roosevelt urged Americans to sustain the war effort. But he also now looked ahead, confident that Americans who had achieved so much wanted to not only revive the New Deal, but in every way expand upon it. Opinion polls conducted in 1943 indicated, for example, that 83% of Americans wanted a guarantee of health care for all. 73% supported launching new public works programs. And 79% wanted a federal jobs guarantee. Though he was too sick to appear in person before Congress to deliver the speech, Roosevelt went on radio and delivered a spirited address. And after reviewing the continuing war effort, he turned to the question of the post-war peace effort in the United States. This republic, he said, had its beginning and grew to its present strength under the protection of certain inalienable rights. They were our rights to life and liberty. As our nation has grown in size and stature, however, as our industrial economy expanded, these political rights proved inadequate to assure us equality in the pursuit of happiness. The words that followed are among the most radical in presidential history. We have come, FDR contended, to a clear realization of the fact that true individual freedom cannot exist without economic security and independence. Necessitous men are not free men. What he then proposed would be seen as far left today, though as he reminded his fellow Americans, it was not a repudiation of the promises enshrined in the Declaration and the Bill of Rights, but a continuation and realization of them. Indeed, only with economic rights could political rights be made real. As Roosevelt said, In our day, certain economic truths have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity can be established for all, regardless of station or race or creed. The rights Roosevelt was proposing, a right to a home, to health care, to earn enough money to live comfortably, a guaranteed job, would be called socialism or even communism by today's conservatives. But whatever they might be labeled, they were rooted, as FDR made clear, in America's promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Empowered by the aspirations of those who had fought the Depression and were now fighting fascism, Roosevelt was projecting a path to a better, brighter, happier, and healthier future. All of these rights, he said, spell security. And after this war is won, we must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. But FDR knew all too well that there were those who would fiercely oppose them, as they always had. And he warned his fellow citizens against what he called the grave dangers of rightist reaction. What Roosevelt laid out in his State of the Union was something simple, but radical. It was that history wasn't something to be left in the past, but to be constantly renewed and remade. New times demand new freedoms. Just a few years earlier, his Solicitor General, Robert H. Jackson, a future Supreme Court Justice, told the members of the National Lawyers Guild, we too are founders. We too are makers of a nation. We too are called upon to write, to defend, and to make live new bills of right. At a demonstration in New York City, 1.4 million people 
showed up to hear Senator Robert Wagner enthusiastically defend the call for a second Bill of Rights. Labor and civil rights groups actively campaigned for it. And in the presidential election later that year, Roosevelt won a fourth term as president with a resounding 432 electoral votes. Roosevelt would not live to achieve his dream. At his fourth and final inauguration in 1945, he appeared sick and frail. While he was getting his portrait painted just a few months later in Warm Springs, Georgia, he put his hand over his forehead, slumped over, and died. The second Bill of Rights was never realized. The forces of rightist reaction that FDR had warned of were too powerful. Corporate executives and conservatives soon took to fomenting Cold War fears and purging public life of leftists, not only to block the hope for revival and expansion of the New Deal, but also to crush the very idea and memory of Roosevelt's proposed economic Bill of Rights. That doesn't mean, of course, that his vision has to remain shrouded and forgotten. What FDR promised, though still radical, remains deeply possible if we have the will to recover it and to advance it. We, too, can be founders. We, too, can be makers of a nation. We, too, are called upon to write, to defend, to make live new bills of rights. I'm Harvey Kay. Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, for the Gravel Institute. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Welcome. If you're still reeling from the Supreme Court's McCutcheon decision, giving corporations and oligarchs even more power to corrupt democracy with impunity, and if the greatest income inequality since the first Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties has you gasping at the realization that it's happening in America again, and if you have trouble reconciling the promise of America, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for every citizen with the facts of America, including the fact of immense power and privilege in the hands of so few, if all these bad tidings have you down in the dumps, I have an assignment for you. Read this book, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great by Harvey J.K., published this very week on the 69th anniversary of President Franklin Roosevelt's death, the 12th of April, 1945. At its core is the famous speech FDR made to America less than a year before Pearl Harbor in 1941, calling on the nation to prepare to protect and defend the four essential freedoms, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from want and fear. 
It's not the first time this historian has reached into the past to find inspiration for our troubled present. His book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, was a rousing invocation of the radical patriot who became the conscience of the American Revolution. Harvey J.K. joins me now. He's a professor of democracy and justice studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, and director of that school's Center for History and Social Change. Harvey, welcome back. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You open fire in the very first sentence, we must remember, and then over and again, we must remember, we must remember, we must remember. What exactly are you asking us to remember? We need to remember what our parents and grandparents did. We need to remember that they didn't just beat the Great Depression. They didn't just defeat fascism and imperialism. What they actually did is to go about doing that, inspired by FDR's words, they made America freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. And aren't we living in their long shadow? Uh, long, long shadow. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, look around. Look around America today. So much of what we benefit from, of what we enjoy, which is under siege, we owe to that generation. What it comes down to is that We've seen that the four freedoms as they're embodied in social security, the rights of labor, in the, in, the, in the advances for women's equality and rights in the 60s. I mean, I, I love to tell my students all the things that were accomplished in the 30s and all the things that were accomplished in the 60s. And you can go one by one and it's an arc. Mm. It's an arc, a fulfillment, okay? Roosevelt actually on the campaign trail was very revealing. I think most historians underestimate just how progressive he was on the campaign trail. There were no surprises. He didn't, he didn't come in unaware of what he was going to do. And when he takes office and he begins this hundred days and he goes on, first New Deal, second New Deal, he is constantly inviting Americans, not just to take up the labors of the New Deal, but essentially to get organized. One of the lines that very few people come across, but it's the line something like, laws in themselves do not create the new millennium. But what he meant by that is, of course, that we can pass laws, but you're going to have to fight. This fight is not only mine, it's ours. And he was a fighter. He took on the oligarchs. He didn't mince words. He warned against the economic autocracy. He said a new despotism had arisen, an industrial dictatorship. He called them economic royalists. He denounced, quote, those few selfish citizens who would clip the wings of the American eagle in order to feather their own nest. I mean, no president's talked like that since Roosevelt. Absolutely not. I mean, if you, I, I have my students read through inaugural addresses, State of the Union addresses, and I, I start them off with, you know, the 1936 Roosevelt, one speech where he talks about economic royalists. And he's, you know, basically he's saying, they complain that we're out to, you know, tr you know, overturn American institutions. But what they're really complaining about is we want to overturn their power. And guess what? They're right. <laughs> now, one president <laughs> other than FDR would have said that. That's magnificent. I mean, it's the kind of thing you just listen to over and over again. And then he goes off to say, I welcome their hatred, the, the, you know. Yeah, he was a tough fighter against the economic royalists, against yeah. the uh, aristocracy right. of, of, of wealth. And he came from that part of the country. And I was taken, although I've read this before, I think you said it so concisely mm. that, that as a young man growing up, he wasn't particularly sensitive to the 
poor or sensitive to minorities or sensitive to the marginalized, but that as a victim of polio, he came to possess this great empathy. His, his labor secretary in her memoir of Roosevelt talks... Francis Perkins. Francis Perkins, thank you. She says, knowing him early on, around 1912, and knowing him later, after he's stricken with polio, it was a changed man, a man filled with a new kind of sensitivity and a sensibility. I also think and I think she mentions it, Francis Perkins, that Eleanor plays a really fundamental role during the 1920s in introducing him to the women that she's meeting down here in New York City, labor organizers and others, and he's all of a sudden coming to grips with the struggles of working people in the cities. And I think that that registered in him. Why was the four freedom speech so important? I think the four freedom speech is important in the most immediate sense of 1941, and that's really the call to war. Americans know what's coming. The call to war is, we need to create an arsenal for democracy. We need to create a Lend-Lease program to secure Britain and its, and its allies against Nazi Germany. And then he says, but don't, don't misunderstand. We have to appreciate that if we're going to prepare ourselves for defense, that we don't give up what we've achieved these last eight years. And he lays out new initiatives. What he knew and what he knew a generation knew was the only way to defend, secure, and sustain American democracy is you constantly press to enhance it. You test the limits. We're the great experiment in democracy and he knew that, he knew American history. So here he appears and how does he close this speech? the four freedoms. And he actually says that these four freedoms are at the heart of American life. They're at the heart of this ongoing perpetual and peaceful revolution dating back to the time of the revolution. I didn't realize until I read your book what the importance of the victory medal that every uh, soldier, sailor, marine, airman uh, airman received in World War II. And tell me about that. Well, this was a medal awarded at the end of the war to everyone who served in uniform. And this was a medal that on the front looks just like any other war medal. And when you flip it to the back side, it says... Freedom from fear, freedom from want, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. Yes. And it isn't that this was issued as a propaganda device. The war is over. This was issued because the Roosevelt administration knew that this is what Americans were fighting for. It was, in, it was in any number of venues that you could see the evidence. Letters to newspapers by the wives who stayed home and went to work in the war factories and the men who went off to service. Americans couldn't always recite those four freedoms, but they knew exactly what they were fighting for. I, I had to shake my head when I came to that moment in your book when you say that when Roosevelt delivering the speech got to freedom Freedom from Walt, no Republicans applauded, and least, some Democrats right. didn't Right. Applaud. I think that shook up the Republicans. Samuel Grafton, the, New York, the then liberal New York Post columnist, said they sat in their hands. And then he got to freedom from fear, and that was when he said it. And I think the Demo- a good number of Democrats, and you know who those were. They were the white supremacist Democrats. Yes, because he was talking about freedom from persecution and right. discrimination. Right, exactly. And exactly. that's when the, the yeah. Dixiecrats would have sat on their hands, yes. Democrats. right. You know what's interesting, Bill, is if you read the exact wording of the speech and his idea of the four freedoms, Roosevelt states them in a way that might not have been so scary to the well-off. 
But Americans knew they were talking to he that he was talking to them. And when they said, when they heard freedom from want and freedom from fear, they had absolutely no doubt what he had in mind. I remember you're quoting something that FDR said to a friend of his, I think in 1930. 1930. What was it? He said to a friend, looking all around him with the devastation of the Great Depression, I think it's time that we make America fairly radical for a generation. Fairly radical? Fairly radical. Fairly radical. Reminded me of Walt Whitman, be radical, be radical, be not too damn radical. What do you think he meant by that? I think he meant that it was time to free ourselves of the conservative shackles of the 1920s, that it was time to enable working people to organize. It was time to provide old age pensions. I'm actually reading in my head from his campaign speeches. We needed to create public works projects. We needed to address the environment, soil erosion. He, agriculture was fundamental to Franklin Roosevelt. Over and over again, out on the campaign trail that year, contrary to what historians seem to, to say, Roosevelt was saying, we need to do these things. That's what he meant by radical. But he didn't mean merely that he would do it or the Democrats in Congress would do it. As we saw in the coming years, he meant we will make America fairly radical for a generation. Roosevelt didn't call for a revolution, although many people thought one was imminent. No, yes, they did. And And look, the wealthy were talking about maybe a Mussolini. But Positive, not the American Positively, positively. positively absolutely. Yeah, Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair ran an editorial wondering if we didn't need a strong man like Mussolini in that year. Um, the president, whose name I'm forgetting, of the American Political Science Association, gave his annual address and said, perhaps we're going to become fascist or even communist. You know, Roosevelt, in many ways, I have a feeling this goes back to his, back to his reading of Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Jefferson said, in every generation, Americans need a bit of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Okay? And I think Roosevelt understood that. You know, in 1938, just before the congressional midterm elections, you know, the midterm elections, he did a, 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 a speech on the radio. And Roosevelt said, you know, if we don't keep pushing forward, Tory Republicanism will. And if Tory Republicanism does, then communism and fascism have greater chance of taking root in this country. You know, in 1926, it's not even a depression. His greatest worry was that if America didn't escape the conservative hole that it was in, that he worried for the nation's future. I think there's a trajectory in Roosevelt that's astounding, and, and I think historians ignore it. In 1932, he talked about an economic declaration of rights. In 1941, he declares, proclaims the four freedoms. In 1944, he calls for a second Bill of Rights, specifically an economic Bill of Rights. There's a tremendous continuity in his thought. He's just articulating it more clearly. So if he were not calling for a revolution, what was he calling for? I think he knew that certain ills and injustices needed to be addressed. At one point he gave a speech, I think it was in 1934. He says, real patriotism requires us to make an America where more of us get to share in what this country is about. And he said, real patriotism is about combating the evils and injustices. Now, he did that at a World War I memorial. He didn't, you know, try to rally people into some kind of military fever. He knew. He had a, but he had this incredible confidence in his fellow citizens. He believed that if you could empower working people, if you could afford the necessities to people, that if you could do these things, you create, and it sounds cliche, a better America. 
That, that, he knew that this country was a grand experiment in democracy. And Going we all have, the way back to 1770. All the way back. You know, Bill, you and I have this affection for Thomas Paine. And I can tell you one of the reasons I wrote this is that it was Franklin Roosevelt, who was the first president since Thomas Jefferson, who, while in office, openly quoted and cited Thomas Paine's name. But you know that conservatives claim Thomas Paine, too. You do know that. I know that all too well. And the Tea Party did not come from the left. It came from ordinary people out there on the conservative side of things. Okay. There's a paradox here. I have a theory. (laughs) I have a theory. Historians are not supposed to have theories. I know. I know. Well, I have a theory. And here's my theory. I believe that, I say that Reagan could never have become president if we, if Democrats, progressives, and liberals had not already forgotten and forsaken the four freedoms. The only thing that enables conservatives to appeal to the vast majority of American working people is when that vast majority is disappointed and frustrated and angry. You're right. We have been led to forget. And who has led us to forget? So over and over again, we saw from right through the 30s, right through World War II, we saw corporate interests constantly trying to either directly suppress the the ideas that are going to become the four freedoms, okay, by saying private enterprise, that's what makes America great. Uh, Forgetting the struggle for freedoms, speech, expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want and freedom from fear that Roosevelt put into words. For example, Ronald Reagan. If you look closely at what Reagan does in the course of his presidency, he appears on... uh, July 3rd, 1987, at the Jefferson Memorial, at an event sponsored by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And he says that he wants to advance four freedoms. He says, you know, we Americans need to cultivate, we need to remember, he says we need to remember. And we need to teach our children history and make sure they remember. America is about freedom. And what does he say? Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of enterprise. He literally expunges freedom from want and freedom from fear. So you say in here, after so many years of conservative political ascendancy and concerted class war from above, more than 30 years of deregulating corporate activity, reducing the taxes of the rich, assailing labor unions, shuttering industries, and neglecting the public infrastructure, the democratic legacy of that Generation, Roosevelt's generation, continues to nourish us. Where do you see evidence of that? Nourishing us? Yeah, you say that. Well, you're over 65. You get Social Security? Yeah, I do. I could take my students on a little field trip. CCC built that. The WPA built that. Milwaukee, the Metropolitan Service District, built by the New Deal. Over and over again, hospitals, schools, libraries, parks. I mean, the very things that we take for granted are the very things that young people were mobilized to make happen in the 1930s. I think this is a very important point you make in here, that his genius as a leader was not so much the exact legislation or the particular things that came out of it, but his power to mobilize workers, women, minorities, students, intellectuals, all these people you mentioned in the book. That was the power of rhetoric, rhetoric and empathy, right? The democratic surge of the 1930s that in many ways he calls forth with his rhetoric and his speeches that say, here's what we need to do. That democratic surge 
When would you find that before, on that scale? Civil war to defend the Union? Yeah. The American Revolution? Maybe, even, maybe it was the greatest democratic surge in American history. So is this, have you written this as an agenda for the Democratic Party? I'm, I don't know if the Democratic Party will attend to it. I want all of my fellow citizens to attend to this argument because I think Americans would respond if they heard it. Over and over again, what they hear from leaders is, yes, we can. And then at the moment of now, what are we going to do? They get left behind in favor of Washington, D.C. politics. Washington, D.C. politics. Talk to me as a conservative who has real doubts about the efficacy of government, who really believes that there's a, a threat right. from unlimited government and who thinks the New Deal didn't work the way you think it did. Two things. First of all, let's imagine we're both conservatives, wealthy conservatives. And you know what I would say? I'd say, we don't really hate government. It's working perfectly for us. Why should we hate government? Out in public, why do they have this animosity towards government? Because what this generation did, what this generation did is they harnessed the powers of democratic government to make America freer, more equal, and more democratic. They harnessed the powers of democratic government. You know, they knew how to go about doing it because Roosevelt invited them to do so. And he brought to Washington these new dealers and sent them out around the country. I mean, he opened up Washington to Catholics, Jews, African-Americans, women. He made Washington connect with Americans, not simply to have a, a better political funnel sending out the messages, but to get those people out in the field going. Well, he would call his, his friend, Felix Frankfurter, up at Harvard University. They say, I need some new dealers, send them down. And all these young Catholic and Jewish lawyers would come in to say, see Frankfurter and say, I want to be a new dealer. It had been a wasp country of Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. <laughs> and what was funny was these young Catholic and Jewish lawyers, Frankfurter would say to them, go to Wall Street for two years. Learn about them so you can control them. This is great, right? And they became known as the hot dogs. <laughs> Did you write this book to make people fight mad? Because they're going to be fighting mad on either side of the political spectrum when they read it. Yes, absolutely. I want them to be fighting mad. I want them to be fighting mad like Roosevelt was. I want them to say, we need to make America fairly radical for a generation. What we need to do is we need to go back and remember the kinds of things that Roosevelt knew, that there's deep in every American this desire to redeem the meaning of America. And he knew that there are ways of getting people to act because if you can speak to them as an American, remind them of who they are, invite them to, to offer their labors, invite them to organize. In the 1930s, I mean, organizers went out and said, you've got to organize. The president wants you in a union. It worked. Millions joined. And by the way, living standards rose, worker security improved, we get social security. I mean, Look what we've done, and look what we're allowing to happen now. This cannot be the America that I imagined and most of my fellow Americans imagine. But they have forgotten, not the four freedoms as ideals, they have forgotten what it takes to realize them, that we 
must defend, sustain, and secure democracy by enhancing it. That's what Roosevelt knew. That's what Jefferson knew. And no one seems to remember that today. That's what we have to remind people of. And that's what the fight for the four freedoms does. What made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. Harvey J.K., thank you for being with me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure being with you. conditions in our country today, this great nation will endure as it has endured. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.